0: Okay, we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10-17, through if you haven't already. And as any of you are turning there, I'll just share this uh, little illustration. There was a movie years ago, uh, a number of years ago, called The Emperor's Club. It was about a teacher in a private boarding school for boys. And about their relationships and that kind of thing. But toward the end of the movie, when he retires, some of his former students... Um, get him a plaque. They give him a plaque as a retirement gift, and it has an inscription on it that said this, "'A great teacher has little external history to record. His life goes over into other lives. These men are pillars in the intimate structures of our schools. They are more essential than its stones or beams, and they will continue to be a kindling force and a revealing power in our lives.'" Now, this message is not about uh, teachers as such, but it is about disciples and disciple makers. But there's something in that statement that could really be said about all of us, even people who aren't necessarily uh, believers or disciples of Jesus. And, and that is that most of us will have very little external history to record. Uh, that you know, probably nothing that most of us do will make the history books anywhere. And beyond that, even most of what we do maybe won't even be recorded in any archives of significant where pe- significance where people will draw that out sometimes later and put it in any kind of uh, books or external record. Um, but all of us will have impacted other people for good or bad. All, all of us will have impacted them and that's especially true and especially important as believers, as disciples of Jesus, that our lives have impacted other lives. And that's how Jesus has ordained for his kingdom to be built, is for one disciple um, to pour his life over into the lives of other disciples. And so I want to speak to that subject this morning. I've titled this message, Getting Personal About Discipleship. Getting Personal About Discipleship. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10-17 to together right now, and I'll invite you if you are willing and able, interested uh, to stand with me just in honor of the reading of, the God, of God's word. And so reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to the word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings and are able that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete Equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let's pray together. Well, Lord, we are thankful. Every time we open the scriptures, we're thankful that we have them. That we have them translated into our language. That we have them uh, in multiple translations in English. um, That we have so available to us your word that you have spoken into this darkened world that we live in, this uh, crazy universe that would be hard to make sense of without revelation from you. So we thank you for it and we open it as always with the expectation you have something important, um, something timely to say to us in it today. And so we pray that you would, by your spirit, speak truth to individuals as we have needs and as you have the desire and intention to meet those needs. And so we ask that you would speak your word, O Lord, by your Spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory and for our good always. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can be seated if you're standing. But uh, as you know, if you've been with us for any length of time here, 2 uh, Timothy is basically a letter from a dying man. The candle's burning out in Paul's life. It won't be much longer before he will go be with Jesus. And he's given Timothy instruction and encouragement about how to carry on after his departure. And, and I think there's something that we can relate to in this. Um, this desire to give that kind of instruction or encouragement in the sense that as we get older and the closer we get to death, which is all of us all the time are getting closer there, but the older we get, the closer we get to death, uh, the more it matters to us that there will be somebody to carry on after us in any respect, that our life um, has deposited something into the lives of people that will outlast us That just matters more the older we get. And so we can relate uh, to what Paul is doing here in this communication to Timothy. And as I suggested earlier, that desire ought to be especially true in the lives of uh, disciples as we make disciples. That it matters to us that the faith that we have received by the grace of God is then passed on to others and really deposited into others and secured in their lives so that, that for them it will weather the storms that they're going to face and the trials and the tribulations and so on. And so we see in this passage here um, two requirements of genuine discipleship. We, we really probably see more than two, but I want to highlight two requirements of genuine discipleship. Number one, that discipleship requires Personal investment, personal investment of one life into another. And then number two, that discipleship must be grounded in the scriptures. Okay, so I'll take it under those headings. First, let's look at the fact that discipleship requires the personal investment of one life into another. So in verse 10, he says, you, however, have followed, or in the NIV, you know all about my teaching and my conduct. This word that's translated there follow or followed, or followed, or know all about, ordinarily meant, uh, ordinarily meant, if that didn't come out clearly, to accompany. So you've you've followed my teaching. You've accompanied me. Uh, would have been historically the way that word was used, but it came also to mean to study at close quarters. I, I love that description to study at close quarters, that you're closely uh, proximate to someone and closely associated with someone. So it would, it, it would describe the kind of close relationship between disciple and master, particularly in Stoic philosophy and in that community of a, of a disciple of Stoicism and the master of Stoicism. So it had all of those connotations to it in the time that Paul and Timothy were living and ministering together. So the idea being, um, you have followed me. There was something uh, literally true about that. Like you physically followed him. Watched, observed, and so forth. But you've also paid careful attention to me and my teaching and my conduct and so on. Well, most of us have lived in an era uh, when discipleship has primarily meant, meant um, going to classes, right? That we, we, if, we, if we were engaged in discipleship on either the sending or receiving end of that, in, in churches in the you know, last few decades, particularly, uh, it would have been more true probably in the 80s and 90s and maybe even before that, but discipleship meant going to classes. and In Paul's case, he discipled Timothy by spending lots of his life with him. Okay, that's the, the implication of that word, oh, you followed me. It's meant classes for many of us, Sunday school classes, in fact, as they used to be called, were in many cases renamed discipleship classes. Nothing really changed about the classes, it's just they were called something different. Um, they focused on the teaching and conduct part of this passage. So he says, you've followed my teaching, my conduct. That, that's kind of the, the, the main thrust, almost the beginning and the end of our discipleship classes. So the teaching element, there might be Bible teaching, so teaching a book of the Bible or a theological topic or something, but doctrine, um, as I think this is actually translated in the King James translation, but conduct. So, so what? What are the implications for our uh, moral lifestyle, you know, um, and for practical living? So we've had discipleship classes, maybe that get real, real practical and deal with marriage or money management or, um, you know, something of that sort. Parenting, you know. But teaching and conduct. Paul goes much much deeper than that, though, doesn't he? Uh, he goes much deeper than that, and really, so should we. But if you look at verses ten and eleven. Um, He says, not only my teaching and my conduct, but my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. He mentions Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. He met Timothy in uh, Lystra and took him with him on his uh, second missionary journey. But he had been stoned there. He had actually been persecuted in Antioch before he ever met Timothy. And so so part of the message is here, from the time you met me, uh, and even before that, my uh, following of Jesus and preaching the gospel that he delivered to me, that's always involved persecution and sufferings, and you know that about me. You've followed that closely of my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all that. How does Timothy know all of that? Okay, because it's not that it's not because Paul told him stories about how patient he was. Right? It's because he's been with him. He's just been with him for so long in so many different context, In contexts that, that he Paul could say to Timothy, You've followed me closely, and you know all about me. You know all about me, and you know what I'm all about. Because you've been with me, and you've, you've heard me, you've seen me, you've, you've observed this. I mean, who could really say that about you? This is kind of a provocative question. Like, who could say, who could you say, could say about you, I know what you're all about. I know all about you, and I know what you're all about. Who could say that about you? And what would they say you're all about? Here's another kind of provocative question. Who really knows your aim in life? Okay, so one day you and I will be eulogized. There will be a funeral, memorial service, something like that. People will uh, share reflections and remarks, memories, and that kind of thing. What if the minister um, asked a few people, "I want you to, I want you to tell about the things about this, you know, this person's life that um, clearly marked them as a believer. And and really, I, w- I want you to, I want you to speak to to the subject of, you know, what was their real purpose in life, their aim, their desires and ambitions. Life. Who would know that? Who would know that in your life?" It's probably a really short list, isn't it? It's <laughs> probably a really, really short list of people who really could say that. Because there might be some people who would know what you've said your aim in life is. But probably very few people who actually would be able to say with confidence, here's what he was all about. Here's what really she lived for. Now, my point in, in saying that is... Um, For Paul to make this statement that, Timothy, you've followed everything about me, you you know all about my aim in life, my faith, my patience, that absolutely required a close personal relationship for somebody to know him at that level, and it would require that for somebody to know us at that level. But but here's really the point that I'm trying to draw draw out. That's how disciples are made. That's how genuine disciples are made. There there can be parts of discipleship that happen in a class and in a large group setting. Uh, But really the rubber has to meet the road on the level of personal relationships between one person and another person. It can be maybe one and two. Uh, two others or or, or three others or something, but it's really eyeball to eyeball kind of stuff. You know, we would would probably be well-served to think of discipleship uh, or to think of a disciple not so much as a student, but as an apprentice. Like if if we just, again, try to sort of put a different uh, metaphor in our head. Not so much student, but more apprentice. Apprentice is somebody who's learning how to do a trade, right? Usually a trade. They could be an apprentice doing other things. But they're not just acquiring knowledge about the trade. So if I were to, if my AC goes out and I call a technician, it's not important to me how much he knows really, like how many books he's read about air conditioning. And how much he could tell me about the fascinating history of air conditioning. like, like None of that is important to me um, ultimately. I want to know, can you make this big box outside of my house blow cold air into my house? Because right now it's hot and, it's, and it's, it's giving me a bad mood and my attitude's getting worse the longer you go on talking about the history of air conditioning. I just want to know, can you fix it? Well, that's really the aim of apprenticeship, right? Would be somebody that learns how to do that. The content knowledge is part of it. There probably are books you need to read. There might even be classes you have to go to. There there, there at a certain level would be tests that you need to take for certifications and that kind of thing. But the most important thing the apprentice learns, he learns from spending a lot of time on the job with somebody who's mastered it. And somebody who knows not only how to fix the common problems, but how to troubleshoot the problems he's never even seen after 20 years of doing that or 30 years of doing that or whatever. And the kind of things, you know, the variety of situations or the variety of people that you deal with. So like, uh, you know, it's not just how do I fix this problem, but how do I deal with Different kinds of people in different kinds of situations. What do I do when the guy who called me to fix his air conditioning is now standing over me, telling me how to fix his air conditioning? Like, you know, so so those you can't. There's no book that's going to have that in it, right? You, but but it's obviously something important to learn and something to know how to do. That happens through personal relationship, experiencing uh, life together as. An H V A C technician. Okay, well, we can we can bring that analogy all over into discipleship. That that how is it somebody would learn what it looks like to be patient and to be loving and to be steadfast? How would somebody learn what that looks like? Well, it's It's going to involve um, spending a lot of life together and even in unscheduled, unrehearsed kind of situations, not planned, not not necessarily just a planned hour of Bible study, but an unplanned trip to the coffee shop or the grocery store or the auto parts store or wherever it might be where life happens, where you encounter people you've never met before, when when you want to make an impression upon people as a disciple of Jesus who brings light into darkness and so on. It's going to require those kinds of situations. And so the question is, if genuine discipleship requires this life-on-life kind of dynamic, one life rubbing off on another, are we really making disciples in fact we we really ought to ask that question even if it doesn't even if we didn't believe it requires this one-on-one life on life things it's still a really important question are we really making disciples and the question seems more pressing now um it seems more pressing in a way that it hasn't before cuz there are a lot of people we're not seeing right i mean we we we're gathering still on sundays but in 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 much smaller numbers than we had before. Some some aren't assembling yet. And, and we aren't, uh, some aren't, many aren't assembling in even some of the small group settings and that sort of thing. But there are a lot of people we're not seeing as we have before. And the question is, how are they doing? I mean, after we've been in this mode now for, you know, however many, four months, I don't know, I'm kind of losing track. Uh, we're probably coming up on five. <laughs> but, uh, but, how are people doing in this setting? Are they, are they walking with Jesus? Are they connecting with him? When, when, they, when they aren't coming here to draw from the well, as it were, as has kind of become the default in a, a lot of American churches, you know, that's, everything happens on, at the church, you know, on the church property. If people aren't able to come here to 800 Piner Road to draw from the well, do they know how to dig a well? of their own? Do they have to know how to find living water on their own or just in partnership with somebody else in the body? Is that happening? Well, see, that that sounds like important questions, doesn't it? That matters a whole lot more. And it it has always mattered a whole lot more, but we suddenly discover it matters a whole lot more than how many people are showing up at any given gathering. The question that matters is are people connecting with Jesus, are they walking with Him? We we ought to have always been asking those. But it really is easy enough to go on for a long time without ever actually asking it, because, because churches have become so program-driven that we kind of unconsciously Uh, measure our effectiveness based on how many people are participating in the things we're doing, how many people show up on Sunday morning, how many people are in small groups, how many people are in other Bible studies, and and so on. And um, we, we make some just kind of halfway conscious observations about people's growth and maturity and so forth. But we might not really ever ask the question, are we effectively making disciples? But again, when all of that is sort of stripped away or dramatically thinned out, what, what, what surfaces, what remains may be standing as the important question, are we making disciples? And many, uh, many of the programs we've done had already become ineffective, essentially. Um, but I think many people recognize at this point uh, that that. More programs or resuming programs wouldn't be the answer, even if we could snap our fingers and have everything pop back to normal. Then we realize there's something deeper that really matters. But crisis has revealed we need a different strategy. We need a different strategy in the way that we go about making disciples. Um, And and here's what I'll say about that. I mean, none of us would have chosen the circumstances we're in. but given the circumstances we're in, we need a different strategy. If you were, if you and your spouse retired and had plans for what you would do in your retirement and uh, the travel and, and this kind of thing, and then there's a major medical situation, maybe one has a stroke or there's a cancer diagnosis or something, your plans change immediately. And it doesn't mean maybe you never, that you give up on ever, Uh, hoping to do some of those things before that the aspirations are totally gone. But your plans change, and and you better come to grips with reality uh, as quickly as you can because reality is going to remain reality whether you do or not. That's the kind of situation that we're in. Uh, We wouldn't have chosen this reality, but, but it's the one we're living in, and we need a new strategy for how we even think about being the church and making disciples. And so each, each one of us needs to really assess how, uh, how we need to be further discipled, perhaps, like where we are in our own growth and, and, and how we need to be further discipled so that we're equipped to make other disciples. We, we need to get in our head that every one of us ought to have the goal of becoming somebody who can make disciples, and by the way we don't have that doesn't have to be when we get it all together like we don't have to arrive at apostle Paul level before we can make disciples. We have what it takes as it were to open ourselves up to open our homes up to to share some of our life with another person um, who can learn from the wisdom, the patience, the love, the steadfastness, those things that the Holy Spirit has worked into us over a season of time but we We need to to make this sort of mental shift to to identify how we need to be discipled and how we can be equipped to make disciples of others. We don't need more events on the church calendar. We, We do not need more events on the church calendar. We need more time on our own personal calendar. We need to clear some space on our personal calendars routinely in our lives to make room for one or two close personal relationships that can become discipling relationships. In some cases, making time for people we haven't even met yet. That we're just just shifting into a different gear in life. We're noticing people We're um, making conversation with people. We're trying to start relationships with people that may become gospel opportunities, discipling opportunities, or whatever the Lord would open up to us. But our, our priority needs to become investing our lives into other lives. The second thing I said, the second requirement of discipleship is that discipleship must be grounded in the scriptures. You know, for many of us in evangelical circles, this starts to sound... Um, cliche, but it 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 can't be overemphasized, frankly. And if you look at verses fourteen and fifteen, it's clear uh, this is central to some of what Paul is telling Timothy. He says, "But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise." for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The one imperative in this whole passage, you know, I said last week when we were looking at um, the first part of chapter three, one of the ways this may be helpful in in reading and sort of deriving, extracting um, the helpful practical truths out of epistles is to look for what are the imperatives, what are the commands that are given here. The only one in this passage we've read right here is in verse 14, continue. This is the message to Timothy. Timothy, Continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it. He's learned it from Paul, obviously, and he's learned it from his mother and grandmother. We learned at the beginning of uh, 1 of Timothy. And it says here that from your childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings because you've been raised and discipled even in your own home by your mother and grandmother who taught you the scriptures. His convictions are rooted in the scriptures. So having just said that knowledge isn't enough, that you can't just go to classes or just read books, knowledge is not sufficient, but it is certainly essential. It is is absolutely essential. It will not suffice for Christians to get together in small groups or whatever other kind of... uh, Groups (laughs) groups <laughs> that they might any kind of community group. It's not sufficient for them to get together and talk about their feelings and their struggles and then pray together. Uh, that's important to do together, but that is woefully inadequate um, to constitute discipleship. Relationship is part of the life of a disciple, but it is not nearly enough. Uh, if indeed discipleship is, is basically a spiritual apprenticeship that aims to equip believers for every good work, as it says in the end of uh, verse seventeen. There, then the then the scriptures are a necessary resource for that task. But maybe right now the reminder we need even more than that. In in the it, right now in August of 2020, in all that we're living in, maybe the reminder we need more than the fact that it's. Uh, Useful for, you know, profitable for instruction and training and righteousness and correction and so on. Maybe what we need to be reminded of is that the scriptures are true and sure and reliable. Now, again, that might sound cliche on the surface, but here's why I think we need the reminder because we are living with so much uncertainty that we're not accustomed to. You know, lots of people in the world and lots of pe- people throughout history have always known life was <laughs> uncertain. They never had a sense of security in tomorrow. We have a false sense of security in it, um, but we've also been blessed with such conditions where much more of our life is predictable, and even um, appears to be controllable to us. Uh, much more of that than um, than we could ever sort of contrive on our own. But we're living with so much uncertainty that we're uncertainty that we're accustomed to. Um, so we're wondering, what's going to happen with schools and colleges uh, this fall? Like, like two weeks from now <laughs> and beyond. You know, what's going to happen with schools and colleges? What's going to happen in November when the election comes around and after that? You know, is there going to be a second wave of this virus later in the fall and in the winter? And what's going to happen with the holidays this year and Thanksgiving and Christmas? You know, how's the economy I'm going to end up here. I mean, you know, where certain businesses still aren't open, what's going to happen with all that? Well, the point is, there are those questions and, and a dozen others we could ask that you don't know the answer to and I don't know the answer to. But what do we know? What do we know? In the midst of all of that kind of uncertainty, what do we know? We know that God's word cannot lie, it cannot change, it cannot fail. Why do we know that? Because God cannot lie and he cannot change, and he cannot fail. So we know everything the scriptures tell us is true about God, about his sovereignty over creation that we read about in Psalm 96, and about his love for us. We know that it tells us how the story ends. And by the way, this isn't even the main story. I was gonna say that there's a sequel after this story, but really this life is kind of prequel to the real story. We, and we know, we know how this chapter ends and who's victorious in it. We know that he will come to judge the living and the dead. We read that too. That those who are in Christ, who believe in him, will, will, will find that their judgment has been poured out on Christ on their behalf. And those that don't know him will receive that in their own person. But we know that that's how the story ends. We can have confidence in that. Uh, That is to say, when our whole world is shaking, we have something to hold on to that cannot be shaken. When When our whole world is shaking, we have something we can hold on to that cannot be shaken. Because in in those times when you're confronted by the enemy, by real, real trouble, real trial, you know, your feelings will fail you. If you've made your small group and your relationships all about talking about your feelings, essentially, or feelings-driven kind of thing, I feel like this is what maybe the Lord is doing or saying or whatever. If that's the, if that's the sort of beginning and end um, of your discipling relationships, your feelings will fail you. They will flee you like a coward in battle in times where you really need something to cling to. And you'll find, you, you, you'll have zero confidence in the little catchy phrases that your friend Jasmine has posted on Instagram or whatever. I mean, they sounded um, you know kind of inspiring at the moment like in, 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 on good days. But you're, when you're really facing Uh, darkness and trouble and difficulty, you'll find those things are, are, you have zero confidence in them because you don't even know if they're true. What you do know is true is the word of God and that is sure and fast and immovable. And when things go from bad to worse, as Paul told Timothy they were going to, we can continue in what we've learned and have firmly believed, if what we have firmly believed comes from the Word of God. And so I'll just wrap up with a a couple of questions here for us to sort of take away and ponder. But where are you as a disciple and as a disciple maker? You know, if you think about that whole apprenticeship analogy, you know, have you found somebody, somebody to apprentice with? Somebody who... Um, is more mature as a believer, maybe because they've been a believer for longer, or maybe because they've just gone deeper and faster. But have you found somebody to apprentice with? Have you maybe dropped out of the program? You were an apprentice, and you just quit apprenticing. And maybe you need to re-enroll. That you really need to get active again. In your growth as a disciple. Knowing that you ought to have the aim of becoming a disciple maker. And you know you're not there yet. Maybe you need to re-enroll. In what additional ways do you need to be equipped to train others? I kind of uh, suggested earlier that's a little bit of a tricky question and it's and and it can be kind of a dangerous question because we can convince ourselves that we're not well equipped and we'll never be well equipped enough do not talk yourself into that okay do not talk yourself into that maybe the best way uh to 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 find out the good and the bad of that kind of thing is just getting in closer relationship um with you know, one, one other, two other people or something like that where uh, iron can sharpen iron. You, you can rub off some on each other. But where are you as a disciple and a disciple maker? Because I am, I am convinced of this. We need a new strategy. We, we have to adopt a different strategy, strategy as a church. I don't know what's going to uh, happen a year from now. I don't know what church is going to be like. I don't know what life is going to be like. Um, I know that if, if we're still here on this planet, that our commission from the king is still the same. That the kingdom building he is doing on this earth is still ours to participate in. And that the clearest and most basic task that we're given in participating with him in that is going and making disciples who make disciples what's your next move, and what's mine, because we need there to be a next move. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for just the truth, um, unwavering truth of your word. That as we read from the psalm earlier, that it's true that you're Lord, it's true that this world shall never be moved, even as everything on it is moving, but that you are the master and Lord of it all, and yet you're master and Lord of us, that you've made us co-rulers with you on this planet, children and heirs and servants. God, we pray by your spirit that you would really make this truth come alive to us today, that we would know um, where we are in the process of becoming more and more mature disciples, that we would know how we need to respond in being discipled and making disciples, in being disciples so that we can get equipped to make disciples. But Lord, I pray that you would convince every single person hearing this, including myself, that this is non-optional. That it's, it's always been non-optional, but now... All of the alternatives have been stripped away. All of the distractions that we, all the things we might substitute for real disciple making that could disguise as disciple making in, in church have all been halted. And, and we are faced with this non negotiable command to make disciples. Lord, I pray you would move us to be, the, to be disciples who make disciples in whatever way we need to be moved. I'm asking that sincerely uh, and urgently in the name of Jesus. Amen.